Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Dan Feinberg. What's up, Dan? Oh, I'm still riding that adrenaline wave from the Super Bowl, Leslie. That feels like eternity ago. It is amazing that we get to record this podcast on Thursday and anything that happened three or four days earlier feels like it was a million gazillion years ago. There was a there was an Iowa primary that was like Monday. I mean, admittedly, it's still going on now, so maybe it's okay that it feels like it just happened anyway. It's all crazy. But yes, there was a Super Bowl. Lots of people watched it. Yeah, it was down down year over year, but, you know, 49, you know, bummer we're, for the 49ers. We're still talking over 100 million viewers and lots of people. It's still a big deal. People Yay. watch The Masked Singer, but that'll level off and ultimately not make a difference or mean anything. And uh, and suburban housewives in middle America are deeply offended that uh, Jennifer Lopez and Shakira uh, got sexy and stuff. Yeah, that feels like like it happened months and months ago. This, this, this week has been a very long month, and this month has been a very long year, and this year has been a very long decade, Dan. Oh, then let's get to this week's big stories, Leslie. Whee! Well, getting started in this week's headlines, this just in, FX is recasting the star of Why the Last Man as Barry <sighs> Keegan is exiting the drama series as the new showrunner, Eliza Clark, makes her own mark on the show. Sources say Keegan is the only actor to, that will be recast, although the Capuchin Monkey, a.k.a. former Marcel, may be turned to CGI. As we've well established, my opinion is use a real monkey. On the other hand, I understand how the monkey formerly known as Marcel, you know, it just may be a lot to ask of that monkey. Also, goodness gracious, this is so complicated and it keeps going and... It's the new lock and key. Oh, God. But so are they going to have to reshoot just his scenes or are they going to reshoot the whole thing? And this makes it even less likely that we're actually going to see this show in 2020. Now I'm beginning to wonder if we're going to see it by 2022. It's uh, very, very bleak. Yeah, it, it doesn't look great. But and as far as what, what how much of it they're going to reshoot, I have no idea. I think it's all still developing it. And, you know, it'll be based on how much of the script changes from one showrunner regime to the new one. So stay tuned. Continuing with headlines, over in Netflix news, Tom Hiddleston will star in a 10-episode political thriller called White Stork. The theme song will be... Come along with White Stork. Sail along with White Stork. So much to see waiting for you and me. Come on, sing along. I have no idea what you're talking about, Dan. Oh, come on. Our producer, Josh, totally knows that I'm singing the song from the Snorks. No, he's shaking his head no. We, oh, my God. No. I'm so sad for you. No. I'm so sad for Josh. I'm so sad for everybody. Our listeners know. Anyway. I'm not sad because you sang. And look, less than, less than a minute after I said, you're either going to sing or make a titmouse joke. <sighs> Hee -tee. See, you get two okay. for one. <laughs> the streamer has also canceled the ice skating drama Spinning Out, which my parents binged in one weekend. <laughs> and, true story. <laughs> <laughs> and the former Fox drama soundtrack, which I barely noticed existed. And in news that broke last week and ties into a beloved TV's Top 5 topic, uh, The Crown will end a season earlier than had been previously discussed slash announced, with Netflix confirming that Imelda Staunton, who is just awesome, will be the final Queen Elizabeth in a fifth and final season of The Crown. Yeah, and be sure to go back and check out our November 22nd episode, which features an in-depth interview with The Crown creator Peter Morgan, in which he discusses plans for how he already wants to end the series. It is a great conversation. Yeah. Meanwhile, five years after Parks and Recreation wrapped its run, Chris Pratt is plotting a return to television and is attached to star in and executive produce The Terminal List, a conspiracy thriller based on the book by Jack Carr. 
Pratt and his Magnificent Seven director Antoine Fuqua together are teaming to develop and exec produce. It will be shopped to prestige cable networks and streaming services. So stay tuned where that one lands. Color me thrilled. Uh, Hey, man, Chris Pratt. I've got no? no problems with Chris Pratt. The thing is, I like Chris Pratt when he's funny. When funny, he's just yeah. a buff action hero, he's fairly boring. So I don't That's I fair. don't really get the incentive there. It's not him playing to his strengths. But if he wants to be buff, good on him. Anyway, uh, Tyler Perry will say farewell to his own. Get it? See what I, I did there, Dan? I, I totally do. Well phrased. Uh, his own drama, If Loving You is Wrong, after five seasons. Meanwhile, as part of his Viacom CBS overall deal, his former own series, House of Pain, has been revived over at BET as he continues to ramp up originals for both the linear network and a streaming platform, BET+. There will be a test on this at the end of the podcast. Yeah, it's just Tyler Perry continues to be Tyler Perry. So in other development news, this one's really exciting for me anyway. You're the worst creator. Stephen Falk has been tapped to serve as writer creator and showrunner of the WeWork TV series starring Cousin Greg, I mean, Nicholas Braun, that is currently being shopped to premium networks and streamers. It would not surprise me if you have already booked Stephen Falk to be in a showrunner spotlight in that particular episode when that thing premieres. I love You're the Worst and I love Stephen Falk, so, and I'm all in on Cousin Greg, so bring, give me the show. Give me, give me, give me, give me. (laughs) Meanwhile, it's been a busy week on the casting front. O'Shea Jackson, the eldest son of Ice Cube, who, who portrayed his father in Straight Outta Compton, is replacing Winston Duke in Apple's youth basketball drama from Kevin Durant. Duke, sources say, suffered an injury on set and departed the series. Over at Quibi, John Travolta will star alongside Kevin Hart in the action comedy called, and I am not making this up, Die Hart. I see what they did there. Yeah. And speaking of TV returns, former Grey's Anatomy leading man Patrick Dempsey is returning to broadcast five years after his McDreamy was shockingly killed off the Shonda Rhimes drama. He'll star in a political drama set up as a pilot at CBS called Ways and Means. Does he play Senator Johnny Ways or Congressman uh, Hector Means? Uh, To be determined. Anyway, we will have so much more talk about pilot season in an upcoming episode because Leslie has, if you follow her on HollywoodReporter.com, you already know this, been up to her neck in all things pilot related. And according to you, we're about two thirds of the way through pickups. So we will definitely be going deep on pilots, say hypothetically next week. Yeah, I'm just not going to say going deep, though. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five, shall we? Number one. Leading off this week, Disney has reported its first quarter earnings and, for our interest, revealed a big update in terms of subscribers to Disney Plus and Hulu. Joining us to discuss Disney's digital strides is Friend of the Five, I believe taking once again her place as our most frequent guest. Extending her lead. Yes, extending her record. THR's digital editor, Natalie Jarvie. Welcome, Natalie. Thanks, guys. So l- let's get into the nitty gritty. You know, we we know that Disney Plus launched November 1st and it revealed it had a, a massive 10 million total subs after just one day. So what is it? What's the update now after a, a full quarter? Yeah. So at the time that Disney announced that 10 million, they said they wouldn't give another update until earnings. So the last couple of months, everyone's kind of just been speculating and there have been a lot of different, uh, you know, third party reports trying to glean based on app downloads and things like that, how the app was doing. But this was really our first chance to hear from Disney about the success. And, you know, they were honestly right in line with what everyone was expecting. They reported that at the end of 2019, they had 26.5 million subscribers, which is massive for a, you know, three months, basically two months um, since launch. So what are they saying in terms of how many of those people got 
this for free through one of the various deals. Yeah, so they're not giving exact numbers, but what they are saying is that about 50% of uh, the people who signed up came through DisneyPlus.com. So these are people who went direct to Disney to get the service. Now, another 20% um, came from the Verizon deal, which essentially uh, offered Disney Plus for free for a year uh, for anyone with Verizon Unlimited data plans. Let's talk about the programming here for a second. You know, we obviously we know The Mandalorian is a breakout hit and Baby Yoda was our end of year cover star um, of The Hollywood Reporter. What do we learn about how all of these subscribers consumed programming and what it means for the service going forward? Like, is it all because people wanted to see this new Star Wars show or is it they wanted to watch, you know, Moana with their families? They definitely acknowledged the popularity of The Mandalorian and the success there, though they didn't give specific or any uh, viewership uh, data there. They didn't say that, you know, two minutes of intent to view is a rating? They did not. Okay. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. You know, so so yeah, they acknowledged that, that was a hit and they did, uh, you know, get some questions about the fact that they have a pretty limited slate of original programming. Bob Iger on the call with investors after they announced earnings didn't seem to worry about it, said this was exactly the amount of programming, original programming that they want to have. And then he also pointed to the fact that they have this incredible and vast library that you know, no other streaming service really really can can match in terms of well-known franchises yeah, and Marvel and IP. Star Wars and Disney and Pixar and Nat Geo and all of the Simpsons is for good measure yeah it's a it's an incredible library to build off of but what I'm I'm curious of is did he say anything about like how many people watch the Mandalorian who also watched uh, you know one of the Disney movies or something else or is there any kind of viewership patterns that we know he didn't give that level of detail but he he did say that he was pleased with the uh, number of people who found for example the Pixar shorts library which is not something that has been widely available up until this point and he used that as a as an example to show that you know this really is supposed to be what they call a four quadrant service which means they're not just getting the kids they're not just getting the Marvel fans they really are attracting uh, women you know, and families, women, men, families, young people, old people, you know, kind of all all across the spectrum. Yeah. And we should clarify four quadrant is a term, an industry term that that means that it, you're trying to appeal to the biggest swath of the population. So it's not just women and, and men and family. It, it's all of the boxes, basically. Exactly. Um, what about, you know, one of my concerns, and I think I share this with a lot of other people is, you know, the Mandalorian is a huge hit, but presumably Pre well, so far as we know i mean we, at least we guess. What, what twitter and pop culture are telling Culturally. me it feels like a breakout along the lines of stranger things for netflix but what we don't know is is you know look mandalorian season two doesn't come out until october all of these marvel tv shows that are being overseen by the film studio that are um, spin-offs of, of the film superstars none of those debut until august with falcon and winter soldier and then you've got wandavision in december what do they have in terms of originals until then? And is that something that that investors and should be worried about in terms of if, if Disney Plus can maintain this kind of growth? Well, so, you know, they've got they released the uh, Gina Rodriguez produced Diary of a Future President. Because they changed the yeah. name. OK, yeah, it's Diary of a Future President. And I swear to Pete, I am the only person who reviewed that show. So I don't know what kind of buzz they're getting None. off of it. 
None. I've seen no no interest. I've gotten no pitches from PR. Keep in nothing. mind, it is, as my review emphasized, it is a young skewing show and the people you follow on Twitter are not in its well, yeah. demo. So maybe it's one of those things, you know, similar. But High School Musical seems to have gotten some kind of some. success. I think we assume that High School Musical, the musical, the series, the musical was a oh, was also a large hit without having any evidence whatsoever to back that up. Because all we do is speculate. <laughs> So in order to dispel any concerns about churn, which was basically people watching The Mandalorian and then canceling until the next you know, Marvel show comes out, Bob Iger, in kind of unprecedented fashion on the uh, call with investors, actually disclosed an updated number for Disney Plus subscribers from the end of 2019 to February 3rd. So in that time period... Disney Plus added almost 2 million more subscribers. So it went from 26.5 million subscribers at the end of 2019, which is right around the time The Mandalorian ended, uh, and now it has 28.6 million subscribers. So my... My feeling is that he did that to show, like, listen, this thing is still chugging along and it's still adding subscribers. And, and yes, we're in kind of this down period where we don't have a lot of new programming, but that's okay because people are still finding it. Similarly, in a sort of lackluster Super Bowl for trailers and whatnot, I felt as if the trailer with the WandaVision and the Falcon and Snowman, which is not what it's called, I understand, incidentally. <laughs> and it technically wasn't a trailer, technically. <laughs> it was just random footage, but even still, I felt like that got, I would say, more... I don't know, buzz, and again, this is all ephemeral, so who knows what it actually means, than a lot of the, than most of whatever the movie trailers were. So I think that was also sort of them making the argument, you know, we're still alive, we're going to continue to be alive, be hyped for us, whatever. Yeah, well, and on top of that, you have to remember that they're now getting all of the Disney films after the theatrical window ends. So, you know, in the next few months, you'll start to see a lot of... Um, films that you know played in theaters last year come available on the service which will be a draw as well like frozen 2 i think they they mentioned will you know eventually make its way to disney plus this year well shifting gears but staying within the disney purview what about hulu what's going on there now that disney has full control over that service too yeah well it's been an interesting few weeks for hulu disney announced right before earnings that they are going to integrate hulu more fully into its direct consumer business and as part of that shift hulu's ceo randy freer is stepping down so going into earnings, there were kind of a lot of questions about what this means for Hulu. And, you know, it turns out Hulu is also still, you know, chugging along, adding a lot of subscribers. So they uh, ended 2019 with 30.4 million subscribers. That's up 33% wow. uh, from the year. So, you know, Hulu definitely benefited from being part of this new Disney bundle that uh, that Disney has started to promote where you can get Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus for a discounted rate. Uh, so, you know, you can expect to see Disney really start to try to, like, turn those levers to to, you know, continue to help Hulu grow kind of in line with the Disney Plus attention and growth. Vaguely remarkable to hear how close those numbers already are between yeah. Hulu and Disney Plus. Yeah, considering but. Hulu launched when? Uh, Hulu is is more than 10 years old at this point. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty remarkable. You do have to remember Hulu is U.S. only, and though Disney Plus is not fully rolled out internationally, it is available in more countries, so that that could account for some of that disparity. But, but yes, clearly Disney has a huge service on its hands with Disney Plus, given that it's already almost hit the Hulu subscriber mark. Excellent. Well, that gives us some of the clarification I think we needed, uh, other than what Baby Yoda's first name is. and It's the last name <laughs> child. Okay. I will say I Whoop. was very impressed to hear that Bob Iger did refer to uh, Baby Yoda as Baby Yoda on the earnings call, though he, you know, called the character the child. Uh, you know, he did 
reference the fact that this has become larger than, uh, you know, the Mandalorian and then kind of taken on a life of its own. Yeah, and he also mentioned the opportunity to possibly do spinoffs of the Mandalorian already, which is kind of incredible. Anyway, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us and breaking it all down. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Number two. Up second, it's time for another in our regular What the Bleep is Up With network check-in. And I believe we've already done a What the Bleep is Up With on this uh, network already, but we're going to do it again because we're going to take a look at Showtime. This week, the premium cable network canceled your great uncle's favorite show, Ray Donovan, after seven seasons. With the series apparently ending on a cliffhanger, I have not asked any of my older relatives about this. It was the rare Showtime series to be canceled without knowing its last season was the end. In contrast, this week marks the premiere of the final season of Homeland, which most certainly knew the end was coming. And one day later, Showtime announced a series order for First Ladies, an anthology drama where at least one installment will feature Viola Davis as Michelle Obama. Leslie, what the bleep is up with Showtime? Well, the Ray Donovan cancellation is is puzzling. I mean, in, you know, from everything that I told, and I admittedly don't watch Ray Donovan, uh, with apologies to my father-in-law, who does, but it ended on somewhat of a cliffhanger. Also, sources say could have been considered as a, a series finale that a lot of people don't seem to be satisfied with, at least judging from my social media uh, experience. And, you know, look, this is a show that has been around for seven seasons and you know usually when shows get surprisingly canceled it's after six because basic tv contracts for actors run six seasons and after six seasons are usually ahead of the sixth season those contracts get renegotiated and that's when raises get doled out etc ray donovan however this is season seven so they've presumably already done that maybe the central cast did new deals last year maybe they were all one-year deals i don't know no one's talking no one's returning showtime uh politely uh did not have executives available to join us this week but it's puzzling you know because this is the third of showtime's big signature shows that will end this year so you've got homeland saying goodbye we previously, you know, what was it, during TCA, news broke that Shameless would, was is returning for its 11th and final season. That will air later this year as the show continues to do two seasons per calendar year um, or for the final time does that. And then Ray Donovan. So that's three of its big tentpole shows. And then, you know, the, the order for first ladies is interesting because it's every season is focused on a, a different group of first ladies. Viola Davis will play Michelle Obama and, you know, during season one. But what's interesting to me about that is this is a show that was put in development only in August. They ordered three scripts as part of that process. And now all of a sudden, here we are, what, a, a handful of months later, and it's straight to series. And this is not the typical Showtime development model. Any kind of big thing development stuff typically goes on for months Years. I think City on the Hill was in development with a script, the pilot, and then the series pickup. And then before it was on the air, it might have been two or three years, maybe more. I believe Halo has been in development for 13 years now. I mean, now that's ridiculous. <laughs> Halo is, is, you know, we mentioned Lock and Key. I have a great timeline, not to promote myself here, but I, <laughs> I have a very deeply and heavily reported timeline about the, the decade in development hell that Lock and Key went through. Halo. Similar Halo to what is the Snowpiercer new... is. Yes. But Halo is the same thing where you had it was going to be a show on on Microsoft Xbox. And, you know, it's the same thing with Why the Last Man. I mean, these are big, heavy, well-known, beloved titles that, for whatever reason, they're going to take a long time. Halo is going to be, obviously, a lot of special effects. But Why the Last Man is just a rights nightmare. But, yeah, I mean, getting us back on track, you know, Showtime, 
I don't know what's going on here. No one is talking about Ray Donovan. You know, I've made some calls to try and report this out. No one's talking. So to me, you know, considering that you had who's the star of that show? What's his name? We have Schreiber. Yeah. He was using his Instagram feed to kind of, you know, use his platform to encourage viewers to send a note to CBS, which owns Showtime and owns the show and encourage them to say, hey, we want season eight. And usually when an actor does that, at least in my experience, it's because there's a new contract involved or an argument over money. But yeah, this feels sudden to me. And from an industry point of view, especially at a network where they have a a long history of saying, this will be, you're going to go out in style. We're announcing final season well before premiere. And we thank you. And we're going to celebrate you with this big, excellent final season. And we're going to market it. And they didn't do any of that stuff with Ray. They really should have given him enough time to uh, to steer his course to becoming a lumberjack. Uh, it's just a huge disappointment that they did not. No, and I'm also. But we so, knew Dexter was ending, too. We totally and we did. Knew Weeds was ending and we knew the Big C, one of my all time favorite shows, was ending. We knew Dexter was ending. So that let them steer the show to their chosen end point, which was that. I mean, we're not talking about the creative here, but if you want to talk about the creative, I mean, the final I'm, season of Weeds. I'm a little I I didn't mind the final season of Weeds, though. Ugh. It has it has problems. No one's going to yeah, say I mean, it Dexter is like top 10 worst series finales ever. I would if not top five. I would say top five for for shows that at one point were considered great. Two of the final three seasons of Dexter are as bad as any once kind of great show ever went out. So that's too bad. No, it's, it's interesting to me, though, the number of directions that Showtime is going in that seem to be anthology heavy. If you look at most of what they're doing, a lot of their biggest stuff, whether it's The Loudest Voice, whether it's First Ladies, whether it's uh, Good Lord Bird. I mean, those are, are these anthologies these or are, limited series? These are all either limited series or anthologies. They're not, you know, whichever they are, they're not your typical, we're going to go eight seasons with these. It's we're going to go one or two or three seasons. There was that thing with Daniel Craig that someday might or might not Purity. ever exist. Exactly. Yeah, allegedly suppo- coming after he's done with James Bond, but who knows? Who knows when that will be? But even that was already only going to be a two-season thing, right? Yeah, well, it was picked up straight to series with two seasons. Yeah, so, so there's there's a lot of anthology stuff going on. But anyway, we will continue to cover this as we go along. But we are curious, and hopefully at some point, someone from Showtime will be able to get on the phone with us and explain what the bleep is up with Showtime. Yeah, so stay tuned. That, of course, takes us to our third topic this week. Up next, Dan, I got one word for you. Mookie. Number three. <sighs> this was a thing that we had to do by popular demand. Twitter demanded we talk about Mookie bets, and so we will. We will not overstay our welcome on this topic. So those of you who are baseball phobic can just suffer with us for five minutes or suffer with me. Leslie's got a team that if they don't win the World Series... It's going to be like the biggest disappointment in history. So yeah, but no been, pressure been, or anything. I've been hearing that since 2017. How much money have I spent on postseason and World Series tickets? And I mean, anyway, look, you know, spring training officially starts next week. And yes, we have a fun baseball season preview segment that we have planned pegged to opening day in March. But for now, the Dodgers just pulled off what I'm calling the, one of the biggest blockbuster trades that we've seen in a long time for baseball fans. And Red Sox fans like you, my friend, are very upset. So Let's try to make this a little bit relatable for our listeners here. First, Mookie is a superstar, former American League MVP. The guy's personable, huge smile, just a, a great, great human, at least judging from his Instagram feed and a distant cousin 100 times removed from Megan Markle. If you Google that, which is a, a rabbit hole that that myself and Matt Bellany went down the other night. you know. And look, we've seen what LeBron James has done since coming to L.A. He's ramping up his production company. He's producing scripted shows, unscripted shows. 
he, he has a business and obviously, you know, not to, to put a downer on the segment, but Kobe won an Oscar and had a lot of plans for Hollywood, too. So this is an opportunity for someone like Mookie to be on an even bigger stage than Boston, than a World Series win. In baseball terms, I think the comparison, if we're going to look at it as a financial, you know, it's a financial business. And these 300 and 400 million dollar contracts that these, you know, MVP caliber players are getting are the, the downside of that. It's like you have teams like the Red Sox who basically dumped Mookie and David Price because they want to stay under the luxury tax. So to put it in TV terms, it's like networks exiting the scripted space because they can't compete until they rebuild or find a new strategy that works for them with their financial model. That was reasonably convincing as a justification for us doing that segment. Absolutely. I tried. I tried really hard. No, I'm no. really excited to have Mookie Betts because this offseason, Dan, has felt like an entire another season just stabbed right through the heart with the Astros cheating scandal. And, you know, just we, we should have won in 2017 because the Astros cheated. 2018, I, I'm going to I'm waiting to see. I'll be polite <laughs> until we know what happens with the Red Sox allegations of sign stealing. But, I, you know, I, I appreciate the, you the city of L.A. Tempered. needs this. <laughs> the city of L.A., I think, needed a win. No, to, to me, this feels a little bit like one of those fantasy baseball trades where where probably the commissioner would uh, would veto it because of collusion, just in the sense that as a Dodgers fan, when the Dodgers aren't playing the Red Sox, I'll just continue to root for Mookie Betts. This is this is easy for me. I I had no reason to cease to root for Mookie. He did not demand a trade. He simply turned down a below market price offer, they which, him. which is entirely reasonable. I mean, they, and they, they were like 50 million dollars over the luxury tax and which is ridiculous it you know there there is no real justification for that the red sox are a franchise that prints money with an owner who has more money than god and the most expensive tickets in baseball and the most expensive tickets in baseball which has more to do with fenway than anything else uh but whether or not fenway is still relevant in 2020 is an entirely different conversation but it it just it's a dumb thing for a team like the Red Sox, to pretend that they are being financially strapped and to expect fans to be like, okay, well, we just traded away the second best player in baseball for the Dodgers' fourth outfielder. And I mean, Alex Verdugo is a great human. I I love watching that kid. He brings like has such a a great presence in the dugout and is just at the beginning of a very bright and what will hopefully be a very long career. He's fine. He's a large downgrade for Mookie, which means the Dodgers got a large upgrade to say nothing of the fact that having Mookie in your lineup eliminates one position at which Dave Roberts has to be doing weird platooning computer or whatever things. You just put Mookie out there every day. And don't mention Dave Roberts to me. I'm still I haven't forgotten about 2019 yet. So. (laughs) But but still, for the Red Sox to come away from all of this with an above average outfielder, and I I think probably injured to start because he hasn't been Verdugo hasn't been cleared for baseball activity since he got hurt in September. And with a pitching prospect who, as of the time we're recording this, may have injury problems of his own and may cause certain specifics in this deal to get juggled. So, yeah, I don't know. And we should note that this deal hasn't been finalized yet. The Boston Red Sox and Dodgers haven't even confirmed this. You know, and, you know, for, as, as a Dodger fan, it's sad to see someone like Verdugo go. I, I feel your, you know, what you feel for Mookie, but obviously on a significantly smaller level. But, you know, Verdugo was a bright guy that had a lot of fans. I remember watching the Dodger game on TV when the entire outfield bleachers sang happy birthday to him in the middle of a game. You know, he's a fan favorite and losing, you know, Kenta Maeda in the deal is a big. You know, oh, big you lost hurts. a fourth starter to get another. He was a great middle bullpen guys. It's just to, to me this the Dodgers are a lot about team chemistry and, and Kenta and Verdugo were a big part of that. 
they were part of it. There is no chance that Mookie will be Obviously, anything other upgrade, than a wonderful clubhouse presence. I get it. Uh, David Price is a little bit more questionable. But then again, now that David Price is going to be away from Dennis Eckersley, maybe his personality will come back out in positives. Uh, for me, this means that the Red Sox are heading for a season of 84 or 85 wins, which is disappointing and not exciting. But as a second tier Dodgers fan, go Dodgers. Yeah. Well, I think we've tortured everyone enough with our baseball talk. Let's move on to showrunner spotlight, shall we? Number four. Joining us this week is Dan Gore, the co-creator and showrunner of Fox turned NBC favorite Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Before teaming with Andy Samberg and co-creator Mike Schur on the cop comedy, Gore worked closely with the latter on shows including Parks and Recreation. He cut his teeth as a writer working in late night on such shows as, as Late Night with Conan O'Brien and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the obvious. Brooklyn is probably one of the greatest ensembles on TV right now, especially on broadcast, and the rare show to still have almost all of its entire original cast members I wish this were a visual medium because you would see people would see me smiling from ear to ear to hear you call them one of the greatest ensembles. I am biased, but I could not agree more. I think every one of the cast is just so fantastic. But, you know, heading into your seventh season, how do you keep things fresh? You know, like especially now when you've, you know, for example, you've got a, uh, you're, you're toying with the, the dynamic between Jake and Holt. Right. This, you know, in, the, in season seven. But is that part of the, the appeal of keeping things fresh when you've got yes. the same players in the same sandbox? Yes, that is 100%. That was our strategy for this season, keeping things fresh, changing things up. So just to remind the viewers, listeners, at the end of uh, last season, Wunsch, Captain Holt's nemesis, played by Kira Sedgwick, she's amazing, exacted her, her vengeance on him and demoted him from being a captain to being a uniformed officer. So that completely inverts all of the dynamics in the precinct. And also, as much gravitas and sort of depth as Captain Holt has, he doesn't necessarily always deal so well with things like being demoted. So it gave us, it was a, it was a really fun way of mixing up both the world and also um, Captain Holt's uh, uh, internal dynamics. Well, how do you sort of find the new ways to play with subverting that character's astonishing dignity? Like you've had him in the past, for example, last year with the premiere where he's wearing funny T-shirts. That's a great way of doing it. How did you want to approach that trope this time around? That's a that's a great question. That was I mean, you always try to hit on those sorts of things. I think there's a there's a joke that I really love from the premiere where he talks about how he's lost everyone's respect, including Cheddar's. Cheddar will only poop for Kevin now. <laughs> uh, so it's just finding those things that are intrinsically so Holtian and then seeing how this new position will influence those Holtian things, I think. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any sort of physical manifestations the way that the the T-shirts, which I remember when that was pitched in the room and that's the kind of pitch where you hear it and you're like, oh yeah, of course, that's just... We have to do that. That's that's the perfect thing to do. Well, are you surprised by how resilient giving Andre Brower silly things to do has been as a source of humor on this show? Because, you know, OK, so it's the initial joke. You go, ha ha ha. He's never been funny before. Now he's being funny. Seven seasons along, though, it's still funny. Are you surprised that it is? <laughs> I, I I'm glad that that people think it is. Um, I think that Andre is such an unbelievable actor who has done so much homework and put so much thought into who that character is and given him such depth that it allows us 
it's like this. It's like he's a Swiss Army knife, and we get, just keep pulling out little tools to use. Yeah, I think it can be really surprising. But I also think because he's made it such a multifaceted character, we're able to play with different aspects of his personality. And so hopefully we're not going to the same joke over and over again. I mean, you know, Andre is funny being a robot with no emotion, and he's funny being emotional as the character. He's funny being when he doesn't know something you would expect him to know or a normal human being to know. And he's funny when he knows everything there is to know about something. So, I mean... And he's just funny saying words sometimes. <laughs> I mean, there are times where a thing he says shouldn't be a joke, but the way he says it is so funny. I mean, I think sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating when you spend all this time writing and you're like, does this joke work? Does this joke work? Which joke is better? And you're debating. And then he says what should be a straight line and everyone is laughing. And you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, my personal favorite, I always love when he's like, can't you tell from the expression on my face? And yeah. you're just like, I'm dead at home. I mean, it's it's just Never not funny. There was a joke, I think it might have been season one, where um, Charles has been shot in the butt and he's on his scooter. He's on an electric wheelchair and he runs over Holt's foot. And Holt, without changing expression, says, I am in incredible pain. <laughs> Ouch. I am in incredible pain. It's, it's just like, it's so perfectly Holt. Well, I remember interviewing him after the first season and he was still in that mode where he was insisting, oh, no, no, I'm not funny. The writers are just giving me funny things to do. I still don't think of myself as being a funny actor. And now six years down the road, he's doing, you know, the live ABC episode of, you know, a sitcom. And it's like, oh, other people apparently also think he's funny. Does, has he begun to understand that he is funny or does he still insist he's not? I, I think he still insists that he's not. But I think that that is that's sort of his secret weapon. I mean, I really it's I think the way he approaches it is the way, you know, you're always told in acting class to approach playing drunk. Like he plays it not drunk. He plays it. He plays it not funny. He plays. He tries to find the truth in the in the character and in the moment. And when we write to that and he acts to that, I think that's the best realization of Captain Holt. Yeah. You know, look, I, I do want to keep singing the praises of your incredibly talented cast. But I also want to talk about, you know, this is you're heading into your third season on NBC after the the whole Fox debacle. I mean, but going from now, now you've got an early renewal for next season, for season eight. It came right. th a whopping three months before you even come back for your new season. So to go from like a perennial bubble show to NBC's, you will be NBC's longest running comedy. And, you know, three seasons later, like when you look back on that Fox experience, what's the biggest takeaway from that? The, big, the biggest takeaway is that I just don't understand the television business, I think. <laughs> um and that we're in transitional weird times where um, one network's cast off can be another network's, I don't want to, jewel. That's, <laughs> uh, that sounds self-aggrandizing. I think that the, the real take home is a thing that I think Mike and Greg Daniels always would say, which is at the end of the day, all you're in control of is the quality of the show. And you just have to put down your head and make the best show you can make. And all the other stuff, all of the business decisions, all of these things are often opaque and outside of our of our control and so that's always what we've done we've always just tried to make to make the show we want to make and we've been very lucky to do it first at fox for five years and now at nbc for what will be three years at least has what you've gone through has it changed your approach has it given you especially now with the early renewal has it given you more confidence to do things that you weren't maybe you know considering to do before i think that that's a great question and i think that it's hard to answer it 
to some extent, I would say yes. And I would say to some extent, also just having done so many episodes gives us not only the confidence to do things we haven't done before, but the desire to, in order to keep it fresh, and the imperative to, because you just run out of doing the same things. I mean, we really try as hard as we can not to repeat ourselves, not to do the exact same type of episode. And there are things that we take two or three seasons to figure out how to do because we don't want to do them unless we can figure out how to do them. So for instance, with the box, the Sterling K Brown episode that we did in season five, we knew we wanted to do that for several years, but we knew it would be difficult. It would be hard to break, hard to figure out. But eventually we were like, now's the time. I mean, we, we have to, we have so many episodes to do and it's exciting. Let's put our heads together and do it. Similarly with the, um, Terry Mumu episode, the episode where he's racially profiled. But also there are just kind of fun episodes we, we've always wanted to do. And I think we've had a chance to experiment and do more of those sorts of things. That does not mean we will be doing a musical. Everyone always asks, will you do a musical episode? Which I, I honestly don't understand. I mean, Grey's Anatomy did it. I think it opens up the reason that for people to ask because in these shows that wind up happening where you're like they what shouldn't be doing the a setup. Let me ask: Did somebody have uh, like a tumor and they began hearing everybody someone, singing? Someone was in a car accident, and it was Sara Ramirez, kind of a, who is a Tony-nominated or Tony-winning, I can't remember, actress, and who with a great set of pipes, obviously, and and she was the one doing the bulk of the singing. And then you had actors like Kevin McKidd and his but very did thick the car Scottish accident singing. cause a sort of aphasia that made her think it that was people were singing? basically an out of body experience. Knew it. This is, See, we yeah. can't do that. We can't do that. Sure. You can. Anyone can always get hit by a car. Any show <laughs> also crossover with Zoe's extraordinary playlist. It's entirely plausible, but no, honestly, this is just the, the blowback from having a talented cast of people is that people want to see them sing, I guess. Yes. I think people love singing, which I totally understand. And so they, and they, if they like the show, they are like, the two things I like should overlap in the Venn diagram of things I like. And I think there's a strong suspicion that seeing Andre Brower singing in comedic form would probably be very funny. Yes. So, yes, I have no doubt that Andre Brower is singing, but we can figure out a way to make him sing without doing a musical. I, I still think you should maybe do a musical episode. Of My God, I should <laughs> never have brought it up. Now I, it's like, honestly, now, I had never just like once Twitter. thought of it before, but now I'm really Cop fixated rock on is this. like the most, is, is so famously a thing. But why would you not want a parody cop rock? Do, well, do cop it, rock do a, a parody of itself? I don't, I don't know. know. You do stop know. in the name of love as an opening number and just go from there. And it's, uh, you know, Dan, I think this is just another excuse for that. You just really want to sing again on this episode. I do not want to sing. Yeah. I want to watch Andre uh, Brower sing. What would the lyrics to our opening? <laughs> yeah, come on, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the one being interviewed here. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> do the networks respond differently to these sort of not stunty episodes, but to these big swing episodes? Is there a difference in how the brass at Fox responded versus the brass at NBC? Another great question. I would say, in the, again, some of it has to do with the difference in networks and some of it just has to do with the age of the show. So in the first three or four seasons, because we were a new show and they're still, the network wants to try to make the show cut through, there was much more of... An, not an imperative, but pressure put on us to have stunty episodes, not necessarily to have out of format episodes, but to have big guest stars or to do a crossover with New Girl, to do that sort of <laughs> that, thing. That was the was thing that happened. And NBC really knew the show. They developed the show. At, I mean, they're they sister studio to own it, yeah. and then continue to own it. And when they bought us, 
when they took us on, we had a track record already at that point of, you know, 112 episodes. So they really knew what they were getting into. And there's been no pressure from them to do anything we don't want to do and a tremendous amount of enthusiasm from them when we want to do something interesting and unusual. So, but I, I, and, and a lot of that I think has to do with the auspices, the fact that the same executives who are running NBC were at the studio when we were developed. So it's really their baby too. And, and so we're all in it together, but also I think it, it partly has to do with the sort of the maturity or age of the show. I mean, I, I don't know. Venerability. If we, the venerability. We've found our place in the hall of, of shows. Um, I mean, I don't know if we were a new show. I don't know if they would be asking us or trying to do it. Although it doesn't feel like NBC does as much of that sort of stunt casting. Do you think? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Or when they do, it's within sort of the same realm of people who you guys are, you know, sort of the, the SNL alums kind of right. rogues gallery, which you guys work within right. pretty and regularly. We, anyway. And we do that more because they're amazing and they're sort of family. It is interesting. I wonder how often those sorts of stunt castings actually work. I mean, the one everyone cites is the How I Met Your Mother with Britney Spears. That's literally been cited to me 185,000 times. I used literal there in its actual meaning. But... Has it ever really bumped up the ratings of any other show? It's the same way that everyone uses the, oh, Cheers was the lowest rated show on TV, and then we stuck with it and it became a smash. Seinfeld was the lowest rated show. Well, okay, they're your two examples, so. Right. But it's also live ratings don't mean anything anymore. Right. And sweeps, does sweeps mean anything anymore? I don't know. I don't know. I'm told it still exists. It does still exist. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. Again, all we do is we put down our heads and make the. I don't know why we put. We have to put our heads down. We hold our heads up high and make the best <laughs> show we can make. You guys last season had a great episode that explored the Me Too movement, and you've previously explored Rosa's bisexuality, which has been great. Um, well, the, any headlines you'll be taking on this year? Yeah, um, we're always looking to do those sorts of episodes, and they're really hard to do because we only have 21 minutes and 32 seconds or something like that of time, and we want to make it, we want to do some, do justice to the issue that we talk about, um, and also we want to make it funny and make it feel like a Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode. So we, there is an episode which touches on the relationship of undocumented um, people and the police, and sort of talks about there's a thing where the police don't actually like this this sort of clamp down on the on illegal or undocumented people because what it ends up doing is it means that people won't come to the police even even innocent people or or victims or witnesses won't talk to the police because they're afraid that if they get embroiled they'll be um, removed or that they'll that ICE will come and take them away. Is it called ICE anymore? It's still ICE. Yeah. How do you decide when something that's topical is a thing that you need to have in the story because it's just part of the plot of the world and when you want it to be an actual focus of an episode when do you want it to be here's something that happened in the episode but whatever as opposed to here's the episode dealing with the relationship between police ice and immigrant communities yeah well so in this yeah so that's a very good question and i think it really it, it depends on how much of a story we think we can make out of it it depends on how we think all of our characters are going to react to the situation so for instance and 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 the gravity of the situation or the story itself. So, I mean, we don't want to shunt a very important story aside. But one of the things that's very difficult is all of our characters are very like-minded and very progressive. And so that means that when we have a hot-button issue, 
it can be very difficult to generate a story because it's difficult to find the conflict between the characters. It feels like we have created these wonderfully progressive people, but that means they're often reacting in very similar ways. So, for instance, we couldn't break the story, the Moo story, which was the one where Terry was racially profiled, until I had a conversation with Andre and I told him the story and we had gotten to the point in the story where, um, so basically... The very quick recap is Terry is racially profiled and he's debating whether or not by another police officer when he's wearing civilian clothes. And he's debating whether or not he should report the police officer and take it up the chain of command. And when I pitched it to Andre, I, I said, and then at, at, the, uh, at the Act 2 break, he comes to Captain Holt and Captain Holt says, of course, and I'll walk in with you and we'll submit this complaint. But we really didn't have anything after that. And he said, I don't think Captain Holt would say that. And I was like, What? And that's the thing you're looking for in a story, that sort of surprising twist. And he said, I think Captain Holt would say, there's a bigger thing that you should be worried about. I would rather, you're, like, don't, win, don't fight the battle if it means losing the war. And the war is that you become a captain or a commissioner or something very important so you can affect large-scale change. And it became a very interesting debate between the two of them. And that informed a huge part of the episode. Is there a reason why the show doesn't have a, a kind of, I don't want to say token conservative character, but a a character who's there for purposes of dramatic conflict to be conservative? Like, you know, it's sort of in the same way that Ron Swanson was there as the I'm the person who, who's in government but doesn't believe in government role without actually being a conservative because he was not. <laughs> I think when we created the show, the idea was that the dramatic tension would come from Captain Holt and his sort of approach to policing, not with respect to those sorts of things, and Jake and the rest of the squad. So his sort of like by the books versus the maverick. And then as happens on all of these shows, they very quickly become friends. And that while it still is, it, it is a place, it is a way of generating conflict. It's not like, it, it feels forced if it's every single episode. We know that these characters like each other. I think because of the police world that we, we are in, it would have been hard to have a character who was voicing opinions that were too far. So for instance, I think Michael Scott on The Office is like a perfectly created character. This is a character who wants to be loved. That's all he wants. And he has these kind of regressive opinions. But you know that in his heart, he is a good person who who is somehow misinformed or misapplying his beliefs. So you're still rooting for him, even as you're kind of like rolling your eyes at him or think that what he's saying is ridiculous. But he's a paper manager, paper company manager. When that person is a police officer, and they're justifying pulling in, you know, doing stop and frisk or or police brutality. It's a the comedy is drained from it, I think. And you know, the truth is, for the first three seasons, four seasons, we didn't do really any issues episodes at all. So it wasn't really as vital to have that kind of character. But I do think that ultimately, it's really it's really valuable to have a character, an Archie Bunker, to have a, I mean, I think that those, that that's definitely a thing to throw into the recipe when you're creating a, a show, a workplace comedy. 
but you just wouldn't want to have a conservative character who every single week had to learn a lesson from the you know progressives in the squad room because then that would be condescending in a different right. way. Right, and there are people who don't like it when we do issues episodes at all. I mean, who just don't, they're like, that's not what this show is. And in a lot of ways, most of our episodes are not about these sorts of things. And within the context of a workplace comedy being a family, we have, uh, you know, Andre, Captain Holt is sort of a stern father figure. And there is, Jake is kind of an impish, gifted son. And that does create all sorts of conflict and running conflict. Yeah. On the flip side of these serious issues, you know, taking on some weighty topics, you have the Halloween heist. Last year, last season, you guys did Cinco de Mayo. How are you guys going to change it up this year? Don't want to give that away, but uh, we definitely deal with the fact that we are not on during Halloween. And I think we've had a, I think, again, you know, one of the interesting things about comedy is that I think that obstacles often are provide, uh, it's like the, that stupid IBM commercial. I shouldn't even mention some, but the truth is that <laughs> by having obstacles, you're often forced to come up with better stuff. So the fact that we're not on during Halloween has meant that, that it gives us a lot to play with in terms of coming up with a plot and coming up with jokes and stuff like that. I think that's why, you know, everyone's always like, wouldn't it be nice to curse? But there's also an advantage to not being able to curse on a, on a, on a TV show. There's at least one bleeped curse in the first couple episodes. I well, we, we bleep. Okay. I mean, <laughs> on Fox, they didn't allow bleeps at all. And then no bleeps, no blurs on Fox. And Which is funny. NBC. Do they not remember the classic Jay Moore comedy action? It was all bleeps. It wasn't. Their policy for the last at least 10 years has been no bleeps, no blurs. Huh. The Go back and watch action. It is all bleeps. It's because he was a Hollywood agent. So, you know, it sort right. of had to be. <laughs> You wanted to ask about Hitchcock and Skelly, right? I totally want to ask about Hitchcock and Skelly because that episode last year was a fun episode because it actually did something you guys don't normally do, which is go back with these characters. Uh -huh. What did that teach you you could do with the general ensemble? And are you doing more of that? Um, it's a thing we, I mean, a dream has always been to do a full flashback Holt episode. Yes. With Andre playing the character. Double yes. In funny hair. Um, and that, so like I said, now, if in next, maybe next season, we'll be able to figure that out. That has been a thing that has been surprisingly difficult to, f to figure out. And one of the reasons is because when we do those flashbacks with, with Holt, they're usually one-off jokes. And they're usually jokes in which somebody is treating him so incredibly horribly. And so it's just kind of hard to figure out what the longer version of it is. And also, this is so boring and inside, but what are the stakes it's very hard to do a flashback episode because you. what are the stakes in, in the current day? I mean, you know the person lives. You know that they, they got to where they are. Obviously, you have to have some kind of dangling thread. So we haven't figured it out. Yeah, I think that really opened it up. And we love everyone on staff loves writing for Hitchcock and Scully and watching them perform and on the show. So every time we do something with them, it just makes us think we should do more with them. I want to go back quickly to the, the heist episodes. Is there someone in the writer's room who's kind of the the negative voice on those who says, God, do we have to do another one of these? We're just on a hamster wheel. If we if we do it every year, we can never get off of it. Why do we have to? Or does, is everyone fully on board each year with? I think that season four, maybe three or four, there was a lot of like, we don't have to keep doing this. And now everyone, whether they're excited to be on the hamster wheel, they acknowledge we're on the hamster wheel. <laughs> uh, there's no There's no getting off that wheel now. But it's also like, Something to look forward to, too. I mean, you, you know, like I watch every episode of this this show like I, it's I watch it the night that it airs. Like I cannot wait for these episodes. And I know that that episode 
that heist episode is coming and it's just like, when is it coming? Oh, it's here. It's here. You know, it's like, yeah, that's great. I, I love hearing yeah, that. I, don't know. Um, I have no question. I'm just, I, <laughs> we also this year, that's my question. It's good. It's just great. <laughs> that's the best kind of question. Um, we, this year are also doing a Jimmy jabs episode, which fans had asked for, for a long time. And then before we launched on NBC, the Alamo draft has had this online poll and people got to choose which episodes they wanted to watch in actual movie theaters and I went and watched them and one of them was uh, the Jimmy Jab games and it was so fun to watch just as a fan I know that sounds like I'm tooting my own horn but like at this point a hundred episodes past that episode it feels like something somebody else did and so uh, we're we we've done another uh, we've done another Jimmy Jabs I love that now last season you guys had Stephanie, Melissa and Joe all go behind the camera to direct and that was something that I believe Parks and Rec also did towards the end a lot of the actors got to direct. What does that do to shake up the energy as as a show gets to the venerable stage in its life? Yes, not the venereal stage. Um <laughs> which you guys uh, do on your own time. <laughs> um that I think that's great. It's a great experience for for the actors and for everyone on set. I mean, it was really they were all three of them did an amazing job. It's to be quite honest, from a production standpoint, very difficult because you need to to limit the amount of time that they're in the episode preceding the one that they're directing because they have to prep. And then it's you try to also limit the amount of time that they're the amount of sort of screen time that they have in the episode that they're directing because it's already hard enough to direct for your first time. And then to compound that by directing yourself can be difficult. So from a production standpoint, it's always like, I'd rather, I don't want to lose them. But that is counteracted by the fact that they they really did a great job. They really know the show. They know the other actors. The other actors trust them. The cast, the crew loves them. We have a really lovely working environment. The crew, the set is a good place. The set is a great place to be. And the crew is really, has been really together from almost day one, most of the people. And so... It was, it's been, it was a great experience. This year, we had only 13 episodes, and so none of them directed this year. However, Kira Sedgwick directed an episode this year. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, which was great, which was really fun. So I do want to get in it. So you only have 13 episodes this year, but you also got that very early renewal for season eight. How much of that was a vote of confidence? And I mean, because that was also, I think, the first time you got an early renewal like that. I before think premiere. in season one or two, we got a renewal like a super early renewal. I don't know why I had to correct you. It is basically... The no, only... I please... No. Um, yeah, I think it was a huge vote of confidence. I think also we wrapped, because we only did 13 episodes, we wrapped production pretty early. So they had to tell us at some point. And then I think... I mean, that I don't think they had to tell us when they did, but it was... it it was It's always the... It was the best way to have our uh, our final table read, to have them started out by saying that we were... We were picked up. So, uh, you know, obviously getting that kind of early vote of confidence, did that change? Like, you guys have been the bubble show for, for the longest time. Did, did you know that you were going to be coming back? Did Is this season's 13-episode finale, does it feel like a series finale type thing? We did know we were coming back. It does not feel like a series finale. I mean, it feels like a finale. And so in that sense, I think anything that feels like a finale could really... I We, we really... The most bubbly we ever were was really... Season five and season six. No, season five. Season five was the was when we got canceled by, by that was Fox. really bubbly. That was really <laughs> bubbly. But I mean, like that's when I they mean, canceled the, everything. The yeah. feeling of being a bubble show. We 
we were always told very early in the year that it was very likely we were coming back. It, it was like at, at parks, we were really a bubble show when we were really writing every year was a finale that could be a series finale. And at Brooklyn, that was not the case until season five. And that's the only finale we ever wrote that really felt like it could be a, a series finale. I mean, it wasn't what we wanted to do as a series finale because I, I didn't want the series finale to be the marriage. It doesn't feel like that's what the thrust of the show was. But had that been a series finale, we all would have been fine with it. We're happy with it. Um, but yeah, so this year, yes, it, it meant that we did not write a series finale as our season finale. Is there a reason that it's only 13? Is that uh, Melissa's pregnancy or? No, it's, um, I, it was, you know, last season we were supposed to be 13 and then they added five and the five was, it's just exhausting to, to do so many. So we were very grateful slash maybe lobbied a little bit to keep it at 13 just because it is harder and harder to keep it fresh and we want every episode to be great and we and this really allowed us the time and energy to to focus. I mean we've done now the end of this year will be 143 episodes. Wow. So it's a lot. I know it's like Crimea River. These are real no, first but, world I mean, problems, but, but but we just we just we want it to be as good as it can be and I think we kind of felt like this would be it's it wasn't like a a big debate, but you know, I think this is the best the best version of the show. And there are a lot of people, showrunners, actors, etc., that only want to do yes. short orders. So will Brooklyn next season only be thirteen? I'm not sure. Or from the, from I'm not sure out? what what I, I think that those those things are in discussion as we speak. But I do think that that's also just the way the world is going. I mean, almost every show on NBC this year, uh, almost every comedy is thirteen episodes. I think is Superstore. Is Superstore more. is more. Although they were announced as 13 and then they were brought, they were given more. And then. Which I also well, wonder is because if it's because the Keenan show that was earmarked for mid-season got bumped till next year. I think it's, I mean, I was surprised that they only said 13 for Superstore in the first place. Superstore is, it does great. I mean, it's like, it's in a world where linear ratings don't matter. It consistently has the highest, you know, next day ratings of any, any comedy on NBC. Yeah. You know, obviously Melissa uh, is pregnant this year. The first couple episodes, you kind of see... Melissa, the actress, is pregnant. Let's be clear. Right. Um, Melissa, the actress, has been pregnant before. Which was not written into the show. Which was not written into the show. But would you do that this year? All I'm going to say is Melissa, the actress, is pregnant, and that does not necessarily impact the character of Amy Santiago, the character of the human being. <laughs> she's not a human being. She's a, she's a character. The human being... I Actually, the thing I am most proud of on Brooklyn, I'm just getting you off of this subject. The thing I'm most proud of on Brooklyn is how we wrote her pregnancy into the first the the first time she was pregnant, which was that we she became so pregnant that we couldn't really hide it, and so we wrote that she went undercover as a pregnant lady in jail, and it was and then she could just walk around as a fully pregnant lady. She gave birth one week after we wrapped. That's incredible. And we had her doing stunts. It was insane. It was actually. Almost sadistic. <laughs> in retrospect, that was not necessarily the yeah. best of ideas. In retrospect, it, it was crazy. I do want to go back and, and touch on, you know, you, you mentioned the strength of Superstore's ratings and linear ratings. I mean, one of the things that, that NBC continues to do is talk about Live 365, which sounds insane. It's basically measuring 
a show's performance throughout an entire year on multiple platforms, streaming, VOD, Hulu, etc. Hulu was just at TCA saying how big of a show Brooklyn Nine-Nine is on its platform. But, you know, as viewing habits change and, you know, most execs and showrunners alike used to the first thing that in the next morning is like, well, what were the overnights? Do you still do that? How do you consume ratings? And do you, does it even matter? Um, it doesn't matter, I think. I really do think that this sort of totality of where the show exists is more important than the linear ratings. And I mean, for Brooklyn, Hulu is definitely a huge outlet for us. But so is, I mean, we're also on in uh, something like 250 countries. I think we're a, a much bigger show in Australia than we are here. I mean, like, um, one of my writers went on a hike in Australia, and he was wearing a Brooklyn Nine-Nine hat that said cast and crew season three on it. And he had to take it off because he was stopped so many times on the hike by people who wanted to talk to him. So which was like the super gratifying to hear. So I don't think it matters as much. But I still check every day and still care for no good reason. I don't know why. But yes, Friday morning, I wake up, I go onto the web at eight o'clock when it's, you know, when the ratings are announced. And then I'm like, oh, just or I'm like, ah, oh, pretty good. But it really 0.1 up, 0.1 down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in the in the margin of error, all of it in the margin of error. But uh, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. What do you think of Netflix's decision to measure two minutes of a of a view of an intended view as a rating, counting that as a view? I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. That seems insane. But I also think that they were smart when they said we'd the our ratings are irrelevant because they are. Yeah. It's like I a mean, premium subscription. It's like a premium cable network. They don't measure ratings on HBO. They measure because it's all subscribers. Subscriptions are all that really matter. I mean, I understand. I think that it probably has to do with corporate governance. They're saying like, hey, you gave a $130 million deal to this creator and their stuff is doesn't seem to be driving subscriptions insofar as it's not driving ratings. And so people might go, are you doing the smartest thing possible? But if the if you're just looking at the profits and losses, I don't see why they're measuring ratings at all. I mean, it's incredibly frustrating as a creator or anyone in the industry how opaque Netflix is, but I think their justification for it actually makes sense. Well, we do like to wrap every interview with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying? Oh, so I'm a little bit behind on certain things, but I just have been watching Mindhunter. I'm literally half an hour away from finishing the season two finale. And I, now I know there might not be a season three. I watch obviously everything on NBC, everything, <laughs> um, even the commercials. And I never zoom through them. Zoom through them makes me sound young. Um, <laughs> I just watched The Crown with my wife, the most recent season. I've been watching screeners, so I've been watching a bunch of movies. Is this a very unsatisfying answer for you? No, I, the, no the answers it, are it, all different, and that's what's amusing. I'll tell you, here, here's some nuggets that I think are good. Borgen season one, I think was great. Look up Borgen. It's a <laughs> Danish show about a, the first female prime minister of Denmark. Not a true story, but I think that was great. Don't know where that is now. We were talking about The Office a lot prior to this. I think a rewatch of The Office is always merited, the American office. The British office is also great. Oh, I hear Les Miserables, not the musical, but the like new French movie about the suburbs and like crime in the suburbs. It's supposed to be great. Haven't watched it. Want to watch it. 
Oh, I always recommend Abstract. I think Abstract is worth watching. Okay, you're now the second, second person one in two days on that one, and I'd never heard of it before yesterday. You and Carlton Q should get on the phone and have a talk about that one. Okay, not only that, I so Abstract <laughs> is this, you know exactly what it is. I wrote to the guy, the first artist that they profiled, because my family went to Berlin, and I was like, I tried to get NBC to contact him. They didn't. I tried to get my agent when we had agents to contact him. They didn't. And then I just wrote to his studio, and it, he was like, yeah, come on by. So he gave my family and me an hour and a half tour of his studio and we sat and talked and he's a genius. Christoph Niemann is his name. He's great. I really recommend, I haven't watched season two, but season one is fantastic of abstract. It's by the chef's table people. It's beautifully shot all about creativity and art. Nobody had mentioned that show before yesterday. And, and now, now two I and two days, suddenly I need to watch that to immediately. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great. <sighs> Too much TV. Well, our guest has been Dan Gore from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm such fans of both of you. Thank you so much. Brooklyn Nine-Nine's seventh season airs Thursdays at 8.30 p.m. on NBC. Nine-Nine! Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Dan, lots to pick from this week. Homeland, as you mentioned, returns for its eighth and final season on Showtime. Apple launches comedy Mythic Quest from the team behind It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. ABC bows its 50-cent-produced wrongful conviction drama for life. Ava DuVernay's own drama, Cherish the Day, debuts. Netflix returns to Narcos Mexico for season two. And Lock and Key makes its debut on Netflix after an insane 10-year development process that saw swings from Fox and Hulu and a feature from Universal. Oh, and the gay Super Bowl, the Oscars, airs Sunday on ABC without a host for the second year. Lots going on, Dan, but let's start with the Oscars. What are you looking forward to seeing? I'm looking forward to seeing if the Oscars are able to maintain the narrative from last year's Oscars, which is, oh, we don't need a host anymore, keeping in mind that the Emmys very clearly did need a host last fall. So I'm curious how the show is going to flow this year. I'm curious how the ratings are going to go, because last year it was largely incidental that the ratings went up. It had nothing to do with the absence of host or anything like that. It had to do with a couple nominees that people were interested in. And I think that there are similarly a few of those this year. There are some big hits among these movies, whether it's Joker, obviously the biggest of them, or 1917 is a big hit. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's a big hit. I'm going to be interested to watch, honestly, because I feel as if at least the best picture race is, I don't want to say wide open, but there's some question as to whether it will be history making with Parasite, whether it will be 1917, which would be less exciting. And then there's going to be a lot of really, really predictable things like all four of the acting awards are are locked in. If you have a if you have a pool at home and you bet on anything other than Joaquin Phoenix, Renee Zellweger, Brad Pitt and Laura Dern, you're just being ornery for the sake of being ornery. There is no actual piece of tangible evidence. Can you say ornery again? Ornery. Yeah, thanks. What did I say? No, I just oh, okay. say it. It's fun. Yes, you just... <laughs> It's like a $10 word, Dan. Fair enough. Oh, come on. That's like 25 cents at best. But yeah, see, that's that's just you causing trouble for no particular purpose because there is no evidence that anyone other than those four are going to win. But I think there are a lot of kind of wide open races. Screenplay, director could be semi wide open if you don't think Sam Mendes has it in the bag, etc. So yeah, those are all things to watch. So that's it for the Oscars. Uh, even though I'm the wrong Feinberg at THR to be discussing such things, our buddy and frequent guest Scott Feinberg has done oodles of coverage of the Oscars and you can check it out at THR.com. So what about the scripted stuff? Have you checked out of Homeland or what do you think about Mythic Quest? I mean, are 
are Sunny fans going to like it? Where do you want to begin here? There's lots of places to begin. I think I think Homeland is is worth acknowledging. It it is a significant show that is beginning its final season, and that's a conversation that's worth having. It, this is one of those shows that has been a that show is still on show for five seasons, six seasons. Like once you get past the first two or three seasons. They're all a huge blur to me. I can go, okay, there was definitely the season that was in Germany. I remember that was a thing. Then there were a bunch of seasons where they killed Quinn over and over and over again, <laughs> one of which I think was the Germany season. So, But it becomes a blur, and it's coming into the final season, and you can see that they are looking endgame. The conceit is that after having spent six months in Russia at the very end of last season and getting released, there's the question of whether... Carrie has been compromised, turned, changed, whatever. And thus, you know, you you can figure this out if you look back at the first season. She has to some small degree become Nicholas Brody. So, okay, that's fair. For me, these first four episodes that were sent to critics, the first three were were really fairly meandery without a clear season hook. The fourth episode definitely has a season hook. And probably after the fourth episode, I'm game to see where they're going towards the end. But during the first three, I was I was questionable but whatever um what about mythic quest mythic quest over on apple tv plus over on apple tv plus uh from rob mcelaney charlie day and megan gans of it's always sunny uh this is another one where it gets better as it goes along the the first couple episodes to me i thought were a little bit generic and not particularly fun they didn't really have their sense of humor locked in a lot of easy video gamer jokes i thought it got significantly better as it went along. It got funnier. It got sharper. There are a few really good episodes. Rob McElhaney's pretty good. Uh, Charlotte Nickdow, an actress who I don't think I'd seen before, is is just a lot of fun as the female lead who's the head engineer on the the video gaming team. It's a really good supporting cast. You, you get to watch F. Murray Abraham, star of Homeland, also be kind of wacky and crazy. And that's a fun thing to watch. It's good. Mm, to have we him. have a great interview with him on the site on Saturday. So make sure to come back and, and check out that from our video game editor, Patrick Shanley. Ah, nice. Uh, it's a it's a good part for him, a fun part for him. It's a it's a really good cast. And I think it's decent. By the time it got to the end of the first season, I was I was mostly on board with it and thought it was funny and had potential so and already renewed for season two exactly which is which is good um let's see lock and key which finally premieres after having gone from development as a movie to a fox pilot that everyone was high on that didn't go forward to a hulu pilot that got scrapped to a netflix series now several recastings just many multiple directors multiple showrunners the saga is fascinating at least to me and given all of this and all of this will come up extensively in our conversation next week's podcast with uh, carlton cuse and meredith averill the showrunners on lock and key so they will go into depth on what had to be changed why they changed the things they changed the entire torturous development process why this property is so hard to bring to life yeah but the thing is qualitatively you can look at the series and you can see a lot of the the struggles and the bumps and bruises It, it is a inconsistent show it's an inconsistent show that has moments that i thought were really good and so and you've seen all 10 i've seen all 10 and i can tell you that it's not like this is a show where it suddenly kicks into gear at episodes you know five through ten and it's like yes you're like okay bring on the second season no the first couple episodes i thought were 
kind of a, a miss. I thought the next two episodes were good. Then I thought the next couple episodes were stumbly again. And then at episodes eight and nine, I'm like, yes, the show is locking in. And then I thought the finale was not very good. So it's a really tough show for me to recommend because the things I like are definitely there. But it's really it's a it's a ride. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious. I'm really curious about this one because and I've admittedly only had time to watch the pilot. But Carlson Cuse had I think it was seven scripts with a, with um, the Hulu original writers attached done and in the can. And it came close at Hulu. Basically, Randy Freer, who Natalie Jarvie just mentioned, is now out as, as Hulu CEO. When he first got to Hulu, they were making that decision about everyone at Hulu wanted to pick it up to series. And then Randy Freer came in and said, nope, no go. And basically what I'm curious about with this Netflix take is how many of these episodes did they use any of these seven scripts that were left over from Hulu or did they try to punch them up for Netflix and rearrange and, you know, basically take half of a puzzle piece and then put a different puzzle into that and, and build this like Frankenstein of a show? I don't know, but I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, and I do know and you can hear from from them yourselves that Carlton Cuse and Meredith Averill are already working on, on season two, even though it hasn't officially been greenlit. Yet. And even though they run through basically the entire run of the comic series in the first season. Yeah. So actually, to me... It seems like the second season has a lot of potential because it gets away from the comic because clearly adapting the comic has been a problem. So basically they have all the pieces that are there and now maybe they can tell their own story. And I, I'm kind of optimistic about a second season. So, yeah, let's see. What else do we got this week uh, for life on ABC? ABC is extremely high on this one, but apparently not has high been. enough on this one yet to give critics a second episode. I'm not reviewing it until they give me a second episode. The first episode has some potential, but I'm not reviewing it till they give me a second episode. Yeah, And this is the star, you know, Nicholas Pinnock from Counterpart is the star of this one. And that is someone that Carrie Burke, the head of ABC Entertainment, tried aggressively to land and cast last year. When I did an interview with Carrie, God, it was the midway point of last year's pilot season, like when all the pilots had been picked up and all, a lot of the castings were in getting hot and heavy in the competition for, for top stars with not just the broadcast networks, but cable and streaming. He was the one that she set her sights on. So I'm very interested in, in the future of this and hearing what your thoughts are on this one. We'll see. And finally, I like to tell people that I really enjoy Showtime's Kidding uh, with Jim Carrey, which is a show that had an initial wave of hype. Uh, people saw it was this strange and ungainly little creature and uh, maybe didn't stick with it or were unable to stick with it because of Jim Carrey's haircut in the show. And I think it is a, an odd and occasionally inspired show. I've seen the first handful of episodes of the new season and it continues to be that it is not the most consistent of shows, but it often does these strange and whimsical sh things that very few shows on TV would even consider doing. And Frank Langell is giving just a wonderful performance on that show. And if the show had any buzz at all, he would have been in Emmy conversations last year and he was not. But here I am giving that show a little bit of buzz because it's a show I think is kind of neat. And yeah, that's that's plenty of TV to watch next week, Leslie. <laughs> well, Dan, I don't know how you do it, but you continue to knock it out of the park. And I'm so grateful to you for helping us cut through the clutter and navigate what to watch and what to skip. So that feels like a good point for us to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. And as Dan mentioned, we'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Lock and Key showrunners Carlton Cuse and Meredith Avril. Be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, leave a little review-y thing. Uh, we like to check those out. Also, it helps spread the word of mouth. 
If you want to come say hi, give us questions, comments, or concerns, drop by and say hi to us on the Twitter. But if you have real questions, deep, substantive questions, questions that we might be able to say, for example, use in an upcoming mailbag, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.